Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everybody. It's great to see you. Welcome to Deep Space. It's great to see you here tonight. It'd be great if you could find a seat. Uh, bring a drink with you. That's absolutely fine. Um, oh, that went really quiet, really quickly. That was quite powerful. <laughs> uh, good to see you. Welcome. This is the first time we've done this, uh, Deep Space. We're going to look um, at uh, some chapters in Daniel and look at some other themes in the Bible tonight, um, which is going to be great. But what I want you to do first, before you do that, is that we've sat around tables so it can be a little bit interactive tonight. Um, I'm going to say a lot tonight, but you don't want to just listen to me for, the, for an hour and a half. So we are going to break it up with a little bit of group discussion, okay? which I know some of you will love and some of you will groan at now. So what I'd like you to do is just on your table, just introduce yourselves. You might have already done that. But if you haven't done that, just do that and just say one really interesting thing about yourself to the group. Is that okay? So just who you are, something interesting about yourself, and then I'll come back in and we'll get started. Nearly there. Okay. How many of you got one of these? You know what it is? It's a Bible? Yeah? Or a phone or an iPad. You know, you know what? What I want you to know is that this is the most unbelievable collection of books in the world. It's not a book. When we call the Bible a book, we get that wrong because it's not one book, it's 66. It's an unbelievable collection of writings written by loads of different authors over centuries, all, we believe, inspired by the Spirit of God. And, and what, I kinda, what my aim tonight is, is not to give you all the answers to all this subject for two reasons. Firstly, I don't know them. <laughs> and secondly, what my goal tonight is that you would go away and look at this for yourself. That you would be so inspired tonight, hopefully, that you would want to go away and read and think and study and dive into it yourself. Because that's how we really learn and grow. But I want to tell you, this ranges from incredibly complicated and difficult stuff to look at, like we're going to try and look at tonight, to really simple stuff. And what, one of the things I love is one of the great theologians was a guy called Karl Barth who wrote five million words about theology. And someone once asked him, out of all the million words that you've written about theology, what's the greatest, deepest truth that you've ever come across? And he thought about it for a while, then he said this, this is the deepest, greatest truth I've ever come across in all of my research, in all of my study, in all, my, all of my writings, and it's this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Fantastic. It's like complexity, but beyond complexity is the simplicity of faith. So what I want to do tonight, and sometimes when we look at some of this stuff, we can try and be clever and all that. What we want to do by delving into that is to come out of it with a deeper love for Jesus with a deeper sense of faith, with a deeper sense of confidence and hope and trust in who our God is. So with that, I'm going to pray. Is that okay? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you've given us the Bible. You've given us these 66 books, Lord, which are so wonderful and amazing. At times, some of them are a little confusing to us. At times, some of them are a little perplexing. But God, there's been moments in all of our lives here in this room when there have been moments when words from these books have literally changed our life. When you've come so close to us, when we've been in situations and we haven't known which way to look at, we haven't known which way to turn, and yet you've shone your light on these words, on these pages, or in our phone or on our iPad. And God literally, like light and revelation has come to us because your word is living and active. The Bible says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's active. It's living. 
And God, we want to thank you for it. And God, as we look at it tonight and as we look at some of these big themes and ideas that come out of this great book of Daniel, God, I pray that you'd inspire us, that you'd lead us. Holy Spirit, there's a lot that I say that will be inadequate and weak. But God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take your word, your truth, and you'd make it live in our lives tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we've been looking at uh, the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapters 1 to 6, that's the story part. But in Daniel chapters 7 to 12, the second half of Daniel, that's a whole different deal. Okay? And so what I want to do is just to explain uh, a few kind of uh, things around the whole of those chapters. And then we'll, we'll dive in and have a look at some of the themes. So we move, uh, if you read through the book of Daniel, from third person to first person. Daniel is now writing the second half of the book. We move from Aramaic. It's, uh, the first part of Daniel is written mostly in Aramaic, okay, which is a form of Greek, uh, kind of a colloquial form of Greek. The second half is written mostly in Hebrew, which suggests that the second half is more for the people of God than the front half. Okay, so if you like, in our context, we're trying to reach on church people and help them uh, become devoted followers of God. So actually, it's very appropriate for us not to deal so much with the second half of Daniel because that was mostly written to people of the faith and in the faith. Okay, it was written in Hebrew. We move from story to prophecy. There are some amazing prophecies uh, over these chapters in Daniel, many of which scholars believe have actually come true. They have. Hundreds of these have come true. Some are yet to come true, and others are a little confusing, if I'm really honest. Some points about some of the visions that Daniel has uh, in chapters 7 to 12. Uh, They are continuous. In other words, it's not a series of events. They are not consecutive They're not necessarily in the right time and order. I'll show you the vision that he has in chapter 7 actually occurs um, in terms of uh, chronologically uh, around chapter 5. So they're a little bit all over the place in terms of when these events happen. They vary in duration, some overlap and some are simultaneous. But above all, they cover two periods of time, one leading up to the first coming of the Messiah who we believe to be Jesus, of course, the second leading up to the second coming of the Messiah. And it's like Daniel is looking through a prophetic telescope, and there's something called prophetic telescoping, and there's a little picture that should come up on the uh, screen, telescoping prophecy. And it's a little bit like, if you can imagine, when you read through 7 to 12, and and we're not going to look at it all because it really is quite confusing, but if you were to really study it and to look at it, what happens is it's a little bit like what Daniel sees prophetically is kind of like two mountains, so, and he sees the first coming of the Messiah and he speaks into that and he sees into the second coming of the Messiah but what he doesn't see is a lot of the stuff that's in between. That's called prophetic telescoping. When you look at the big things but you don't quite know what's in the in, in middle. Does that make sense? So that's a little bit of the background uh, of chapters 7 to 12. Um, several visions that Daniel has refer to kings and kingdoms and we know these kings and kingdoms have come and gone. So this picture here uh, is, a, is, one of the, is the vision that he had in Daniel chapter 7, uh, where he sees uh, four different things, a statue and four kingdoms, which it's kind of all comes together really. And they all speak, scholars reckon they all speak of four kingdoms. Babylon, that obviously was in at the time, then Persia that came during his time, then Greece and then Rome. And so the, the, these visions that Daniel had actually were played out on the scene of history, okay, on the world stage of history, which, which was amazing. And so you see different animals that, that scholars put together to be the statues. The lion is the head of gold, represents Babylon. The bear, chest of silver, represents the Persian Empire. The leopard, belly of bronze, represents Greece. And the beast, legs of iron, represents Rome. In chapter 8, uh, two years later, in terms of chronology, uh, it broadens out and he has a vision of a ram and a goat, which speaks of other kingdoms yet to come. 
In chapter 9, Daniel is in prayer and he glimpses into the future and there's a visit of the angel Gabriel and a revelation about the future and about God's dealings with Israel. Now let me just make a couple of asides here and you're not going to agree with everything that I say tonight, all right? And and that's absolutely fine. Okay, you can be wrong. It's not a problem. So, (laughs) joke, it's just a joke. So let me take a little aside. When it comes to Israel, Israel is one of those things, themes and issues, which a lot of Christians, we all know Israel is really important. We all agree that Israel were the chosen people of God. There's no, no dispute about that. But after that, and the times we're living in now, the significance of Israel, that's where there's a lot of controversy and a lot of different views. Okay? In my opinion, which may be wrong, in my opinion, Israel is still very important in the economy of God, but we can easily get distracted by, I think, over-obsession on Israel, and not everything that Israel does, because they were the chosen people of God, makes what they do right, in my opinion. Okay? There's a whole host of other things. I think that we can get over-obsessed with that sometimes. What I know that's clear from Scripture is that we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's really clear. And it's really clear that in the second coming and in the end times, which we'll look at in a minute, Israel will have a significant part in that. That's really clear. What exactly it will be is, is less clear. Okay, And anyone that stands up and says, I know exactly what's going to happen, I I doubt that that's absolutely true. Because there's so much different opinion on this. So I think we need to be careful personally when it comes to Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but not everything that Israel does is necessarily right just because they're Israel. Okay, They've rejected the Messiah, we've got to remember that. Now we do believe that that there will come a day when that will not be the case and they'll turn to the Messiah. But they need to turn to the Messiah, in my opinion, just as much as anybody else does. Okay, So in chapter 10... Um, the third year of the reign of Cyrus, Daniel is now in his mid-80s. So when you, when you link story and prophecy together, when you look at a book like Daniel, and you can do this when you look at Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, they're all prophetic books that are written in the exile period. So he's in his mid-80s and he's writing visions, but he lives long enough to see the beginning of the return of the people to Israel. So he's having all these prophetic visions, but he's old enough, or he's lived long enough to see some of the people returning back to Israel and back to Jerusalem. But in chapter 10, there's also this whole big deal about spiritual warfare, where in prayer, there's all this kind of angelic stuff going on and all that, which I'm not going to get into that tonight. Chapters 11 and 12, which is where we're going to kind of open up and have a little look, is the time in the future that we refer to as the end times. So here's the question then, okay, are we in the last days? Yes. Were we in the last days 500 years ago? Yes. Were we in the last days when Jesus left the earth in Acts chapter 1? Yes. Because the last days is a generic term that means from the time of Jesus to the time when he comes again. So we're in the last days. Now are we in the end part of the last days or not? Pete Spafford's going to tell us the answer to that tonight, okay? As they're in there, I'm joking. I don't know that, okay? But so, so when we look at the end times, are we part of the last days? And for some of you, I know you're newer to faith and you're newer to this and I hopefully want to help you with some of this stuff as best as I'm able because it is a little confusing. But when people say, are we in the last days? Yes, we have been since Jesus left the earth, okay, 2,000 years ago. But are we in the end part of that or not? Who knows? That's, for me, that's a little bit in the hidden bit here and we're going to look at that whole thing tonight. So how do we approach looking at the whole issue of the end times, okay, and the second coming, whatever you want to call it. So when, when we come, come to look at, look at the end times and we come to, to look at this whole subject, what I'd love you to do in groups for a moment, okay, just to kind of get a little bit of conversation going. Why do you think the end times have been such a fascination and at the same time, 
potentially become such a distraction for believers? Why is it that, that I know full well, okay, that many of you are probably here because I said we're going to talk about the end times. In fact, the classic line, and I said after this morning to my wife, lunchtime, I won't talk about sex again, the trouble it got me in this morning. But there are three, uh, three subjects, there are three subjects that are guaranteed, okay, to, to fascinate lots of people, especially young people. Number one, sex. Number two, the end times. Number three, will there be sex during the end times? Like th- those are the three subjects, okay? So why, why have the end times been such a fascination and at the same time perhaps a distraction for us as believers. So just have a little discussion and see what you, what you kind of think. of. And please, when you discuss it around the table, don't like say, that's not right, that's wrong. Don't do that. Just let people discuss and let us journey together and see what God does together. Already yeah. told us about Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, thanks, guys. Okay, brilliant. We'll come back to the groups in a minute. Okay, so what, what I want to try and do, because I don't really want to go into all of the Daniel prophecies and visions because they're very complex, but what is, they kind of bring up is this whole issue of what's going to happen at the end times, especially Daniel 11 and 12, like, like this, this prophetic telescoping look to this. And so we're going to have a little bit of look. So what I, what I want to do is ask, answer, look at these, these four things. What were we never meant to know? What we're unsure about? what we're certain about, and what our response should be, okay? So what were we never meant to know? And I can't tell you how many times I've said this from a stage or said it to individuals, and still I think I'm obviously not, <laughs> not getting through here. We were never meant to know the day and the hour that Jesus comes back. That is really clear. It's really, really clear. Acts 1, 6, 7, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Matthew 24, 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus knows a lot of stuff, but he doesn't know when he's coming back. And and, and I say that, but if you look at church history, Christians read that, but have still tried to work out the exact date. And so you've had it in every single century, in every single era, since, the, since the, the disciples and since Jesus' first coming. Jehovah's Witnesses have done it a lot. 1914, 1914 came and went. They refined it then to 1925. That came and went. They went to another thing. There was a book written called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Sold 4.5 million copies. Then, of course, 2012, you know, the Mayan prophecy. And, all, and we're still here. You know, Y2K and, we've all, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and in research for this, I read a newspaper ad where someone wrote this. Yesterday, I predicted the world would come to an end. It did not. I apologize for any inconvenience caused. <laughs> and and I, I, actually, I actually have my own story about this. So many years ago, when um, uh, I was young pastor, so it was many years ago, um, and, and when we used to, on a Sunday morning, much more have people come and share prophetic words than we do now, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So someone's come here, and I'm standing, and this, the worship's going on, and I'm chatting, and I, I'm down on the front, and I chat to the guy, because that's, and I'll talk to you about why we do that. And he explained to me that what he felt God was saying is that Jesus is coming back one day, and that we need to be ready. Absolutely right. And then he began to talk a little bit more about the readiness and getting ready for that. And I thought, that's great. So I said, on you go. So I'm standing here as a young guy, okay? And he's now got the mic and he's at the front. And, he's, and it's all going well. It's all going well. You know what's coming, don't you? It's all going well because he's saying, you know, I really felt as the music was going on that God was speaking to me and, that, you know, said about being ready and blah, blah, blah. It's all going well. It's all going well. It's all going well. It's all going well. Then I noticed he's got a book in his hand which I hadn't noticed before. And he says, and we need to be ready because Jesus is coming back. And in this book, it tells us it's going to be on May the 20th. <laughs> now, at that point, I have a problem, don't I? 
Because Jesus clearly says, no man knows the day or the hour. So why are all these hundreds of books being written that try and tell us what the day or the hour is? That's when I think we get in real distraction. If Jesus doesn't know, I'm sure that we are not meant to know. We were never meant to know the day or the hour. And let me just say a little bit of an aside on this, in terms of this church anyway, and, and, and handling the prophetic and Sunday mornings, okay? The prophetic in the New Testament, in my opinion, in the New Testament, and Daniel's in the Old Testament, in the New Testament is much more about foretelling than foretelling. There's two different kinds of prophecy. There's speaking forth, in other words, this is what God is saying, and there's foretelling as in predicting. And the New Testament, in the, the context of prophetic gifts within the church, I believe are much more about foretelling what God wants to say to us and into our situations than about predicting what may or may not happen. I also think that in our context on a Sunday morning, I'm not sure that's the best environment to encourage that myself. I think when people come and share things, they always come and ask us about that and we, we, we responsible and accountable for that. And so we pray and think about that. Is this right? Is this helpful? Is this timing right? Etc. And then we do release things like we did this this morning if you were there at the first service and that's fine and we do that and we will do that but it isn't the environment where we want to encourage lots and lots of that because we think that that's a much better environment for that is this kind of a thing when actually we're all believers here I'm assuming I may be wrong on that I know that or in a small group setting when you look at the New Testament the gift of prophecy was much more practiced in a communal relational setting than it was in that big kind of arena and so that's kind of our position on that and actually I think if you look at the New Testament being prophetic is much more about not just about what you speak it's about how you live your life we need to be prophetic people not just speaking out, thus saith the Lord, but actually living prophetic lives. That's when we actually reveal who God is, because that's what prophecy is about. It's about revealing who God is into situations. Now, that's not to say that the Bible doesn't have prophecy, which is about foretelling, because it clearly does. But I just want to kind of put that in as a caveat, okay? So, we're never meant to know the day or the hour. Secondly, we are not meant to know the specific nature of every sign or event. In Matthew 24, and I think uh, someone uh, mentioned this before, this is a key chapter where Jesus talks about signs at the end of the age. And he tells us to be watchful. He tells us to be alert. He tells us to be aware. But I think it's clear he never meant for us to be preoccupied with working out what every single sign meant. This kind of writing in the Bible is there, is given to, to, to help us be watchful and aware of our own lives, but not to increase speculation. So, so what is this sign? So, you know, who is the Antichrist? You know, what is the mark of the beast? What do barcodes mean? What is 666? All that kind of stuff. Because if you look through history, Christians have always said, that's the answer. Nero's the Antichrist. Hitler's the Antichrist. Saddam Hussein's the Antichrist. Peter Mandelson has been mentioned, all right? The Pope is always the Antichrist in every single age. Now, I'm not saying any of them are right. I don't know that. But I'm not sure that we're meant to really grapple with all of the interpretation of what all those things mean. I'm really not sure that we are. And then one of the other big ones is things like, when we are going to talk about this, the whore of Babylon, okay? We don't talk, it's not many messages that I've ever given in my life on the whore of Babylon. We are going to talk about that phrase because it's an important phrase. But again, the whole thing of that from Revelation, this whole idea of a ten-horned whore of Babylon beast must be the European Union when the European Union first came on, okay? Uh, the thing, because there was 10 member states initially, now there's 27. So, you know, unless you're UKIP, it's not all about Europe. It's really not, okay? So, so in one sense, I think when we try and speculate and try and say, that bit of prophetic writing means this, 
We're on dodgy ground, in my opinion. We are on dodgy ground. We're meant to be watchful, but we're not meant to speculate. And I think what the point that Luke made is a really important one. We're not meant to say, we've got that one nailed. We know what that one is. That one's that. I think this God, we don't know that. You know, we want to be watchful. We want to be ready. We want to be alert. We want to be living our lives how you want us to live. We don't want to get into that whole thing. And so even in recent times, the Left Behind books, which I read, and there's a film coming out of Left Behind, and the book of the Four Blood Moons, which some of you will have heard of, I can't tell you not to read them, but don't read them. <laughs> okay, I just like, and I've read the Left Behind and all of that kind of stuff, but a lot of that is speculation, and I want to talk about that. So what were we never meant to know? We were never meant to know the day or the hour. We were never meant to know what every single sign means. What are we unsure of? And this is where I'm not going to nail my colours to the mast, but I'm just going to put a few ideas out there. There are two main roads you can go down when it comes to the second coming. There is the dispensationalist road, which is the classic evangelical or Pentecostal understanding. And in a nutshell, it's this. There will be a rapture where believers are taken from the earth to meet Christ in the air. There will be a tribulation, a seven-year period of suffering for those left behind, during which 144,000 Jews will accept the Messiah and become evangelists to their people. There will be a millennial reign of Christ on earth. At the end of that tribulation period, Jesus will return to the earth, the second, which is called the second coming, to establish the reign, the millennial reign, the thousand years of the reign of the kingdom. At the end of this period, Satan will be released for a short time and then cast into the lake of fire into eternity. There are scriptures that could support that. That's a widely held view in our denomination and in evangelical and Pentecostal world. However, that has only been in the Christendom since about the middle of the 19th century. It's a relatively new theory. There is another theory which is often referred to as the historical road, which is where Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead in a single event, a climactic and purposeful event, when he comes to join the efforts of his people who are trying to bring a just social order called the kingdom of God and establish a new heaven and a new earth. And depending on which road you go down, depends on how you view some of these kind of issues that we're looking at. Do you see this as foretelling or foretelling or a little bit of both? So which road should we go down? One's pretty miserable, if, in my opinion. The world spiraling downwards. God taking out his spirit and his people and letting the world spiral downwards. There's a, perp, there's a bit of a clue to which one I think I'm leaning towards. <laughs> But do you know what? I love the, the statement that Tony Campolo made where he said this. Do you know what? When it comes to the end times, I'm on the welcoming committee, not the programming committee. So in other words, I don't know what it, how it will all work out. I don't know which of these roads. I can see scriptures that point to these two things. I don't know which one. I am not on the programming committee, but I am, I am on the welcoming committee. And I hope you are too. So we're going to take a five minute break, okay, to stretch your legs. And if you want to get coffee, tea, juice or whatever, do that. And then we will return for the second half in five minutes. Fantastic. Okay. Um, just, um, just while you're finding your seat again and we're getting ready for the second half, uh, somebody asked me what happened to the story with the, the, when the person shared about May the 20th, whatever it was. Actually, what, what I did, because when someone does that, just this is letting you into my world a little bit, the balance there is that you don't want to humiliate the person publicly, but at the same time you've got to correct something. So I think what I did is said something like, thank you for that. <laughs> you know, when you said that. But of course, you know, um, Jesus could come back on May the 20th, like you said, but he couldn't come back on any day. 
because the Bible is really clear that we were never meant to know the day or the hour and we should be ready and we should live our lives ready. So something like that. So try and hopefully not humiliate them, but at the same time to try and correct what was said in error. All right, so there you go. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to throw a little idea at you. If, if prophecy is, yes, there is some foretelling to it, but actually if a lot of biblical prophecy is more about foretelling than foretelling, here's a thought for you. Could Babylon be actually a prophetic picture for the dominant culture that Christians find themselves in whenever they find themselves. So, to Daniel, Babylon was a literal Babylon, but then it became Persia. To Jesus, his Babylon, if you like, the world in which he found the dominant culture of the day was Rome. To a Frenchman, his dominant culture is France. To us, Britain, our Western culture is our Babylon. So when you look at scripture and you look at references to Babylon in that context, I wonder if some things have different meaning. What does scripture tell us about the nature of Babylon? Okay, are you all with me so far? Yeah, fantastic. Number one, it demands our worship. Is what we were talking about this morning. It demands our worship. Our culture demands our worship, doesn't it? It demands us to bow down to it. It demands us to give ourselves to it. That's what our dominant culture does. And if you look all the way through history, every era of believer have lived in a Babylon. They've lived in a culture that has demanded that they bow down and worship it. And there's always been that tension between the kingdom of God and the dominant culture of the day and where we're meant to be countercultural and meant to kind of go against the grain. So what I'd love you to do is I'd love you and your group to, to talk about what are some of the statues, if you like, I'm using that as a metaphor, in our culture that demand, us, that, demand that we bow down to them. What are some of these kind of icons or symbols or things that in our culture are the kind of things that are demanding that we bow down and worship it? So just have a little discussion in your groups around that for a moment. So, so what's interesting about this is that not all of these things are wrong. You know, not all of these things are wrong. But in Babylon, what, what they often do is set, some, set themselves up as, as, as to draw your worship, like we were talking about this morning, if you were here, don't they? That's, that's what happens. And I think when you look at the Bible like that, rather than Babylon is some kind of, you know, it's actually our culture and how we live our life. And that was true in every single period of history for believers. They all had their whole list of things that were in their culture that were drawing them away from the worship of, of, of the true God and of living the kingdom way. And so I think that's really important. But you see, see I, I, I'm British and I love being British. I think Britain is the best Babylon there is. <laughs> but it's still Babylon. Do you understand? I think my way of living, I love it. Okay, I love being British. But it's still Babylon. And so whether you're not from Britain, your, your culture, where you're from, it's still that. Okay, it still sets itself up often. It's not all wrong, but it often sets itself up as a rival in affection to, to, to God. And I think the other thing about Babylon then is you get this phrase that comes in the Bible, and I'll read where it comes from, one of the places, is it, it's this whore that seduces, okay? Very graphic uh, phrase in the Bible. It's from Revelation 17, and let me, let me read it to you, verse 1 to 6. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert 
There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Lovely passage of scripture this is, isn't it? The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her understatement of you know I was greatly astonished and I think when we read stuff like that which is so prophetic and uh, visceral and uh, you know full of imagery and all this kind of stuff very easy to get into the speculation about that but if actually the Bible is more talking about metaphor and more talking about references to our culture is like this it makes a lot of sense to me I'm not saying you have to believe it. It makes a lot of sense to me to look at that in my context and say, that makes a lot of sense using that kind of language. That's how a dominant culture can, can grab hold of you. Rather than a literal person, could it be a culture? Could it describe vividly how the subtle seduction of our culture to slavery and we don't even recognize we're there? So when we see some of these things that can grip us and cause us to be almost enslaved to them, it's that kind of language. Are you with me? Uh, it makes the media, the one that we got at the top, the, the and marketing the primary agents of the culture. Because they really are. Because they tell you what you're supposed to think and feel and do. Okay? And, and even though that language is very kind of, you know, um, I don't know what the right word is really, but, 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 but very colourful. It, if, if it's not meant to be so literal, but, but a metaphor to describe what a culture does, it makes a lot of sense to me. And the result, Isaiah says, and again Isaiah w- w- was writing you know, into this exile period, that we spend money on things that don't satisfy, we become slaves to desires and appetites. And here's the other interesting thing in Revelation 18, when Babylon collapses, the Bible says the merchants weep and the saints rejoice. So, so when you look at the Bible like that, and when you look at the end times, rather than it being about predicting events, it's actually describing what's going on and how we're meant to live in these times, to me, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. Into this reality, we exist as the people of God, and we exist to help bring in, or to help identify, call out, whatever language you want to use, the kingdom of God. Isn't that right? And the metaphor in the Bible for the kingdom of God is Jerusalem. So if these are some of the things of Babylon, what are some of the values and principles and characteristics of the kingdom of God, of Jerusalem? Just shout them out for me. Love. And we could go on, couldn't we? Fantastic. And I think when you look at that, you think, actually, that's who we're meant to be, isn't it? So in the times that we're living in, and as the times go on, that's the kind of kingdom that we're meant to be. That's our response to me. So when we look at what's happening in our world, and we look at what's happening in Babylon, the dominant culture of our time, we've got to kind of learn how to not get sucked into the slavery of that, but at the same time to live that out. But we've got to live it out in that, we're not got to just necessarily, now all about through church history, I'm not making a criticism here, please, there's so much I could say that could be misinterpreted, you know, the idea of going out and, and being in a monastery, that's great if you call to that, but that's not the answer for every Christian, clearly it's not, Jesus sent us into the world, John 17, you know, I, I pray for them in the world, okay, not in the monastery, but I pray for them in the world, in their Babylon, that they would be these kind of people that carry this kind of hope and carry this kind of DNA and this kind of kingdom and this kind of culture.
So what I want to do tonight is, is open up a few thoughts and ideas with you that aren't, aren't mine. I, I went to a presentation recently at uh, Elim uh, headquarters with a whole load of other ministers and one of the guys presented something to us which I thought was brilliant and I, I've asked his permission to use some of this stuff and I want to share some ideas that he presented which I really do agree with by the way, he just put it better than I can, about some of the big issues and tensions that I think are in our Babylon right now. And if we're going to be people like Daniel... Okay, who know God and who do great exploits. Daniel understood the times in which he was living in. As well as all the looking forward to the end times, he understood the times he was living in and he, and, and, and he lived out the kingdom in that context. So I want to talk to you, and some of this cause might be quite deep stuff, okay? For some of us might not think like this or, or have even thought about some of these issues. Some of these things you might have little rabbit warrens where you, where you have a, a, a say something and you'll want to go down a track. You can do that, okay? And come back at the end if you want or we'll wake you up uh, as we go or whatever. But I just want to throw some ideas at you. So here's a, here's a guy called Otto van Gurich who lived 1602 to 1686, mayor of Magdeburg and an aspirant scientist. And he developed uh, something called the Magdeburg Hemispheres, which if you can put the next picture up for me, which are these two hemispheres. And what basically he did is he created a vacuum and these two hemispheres are, are held together just by a vacuum. Has anyone ever heard of this? Some of you will if you're in science and engineering stuff. Okay, And the power of the vacuum... Uh, you could not, those horses could not pull that apart and they were held together by nothing but the power of vacuum. This whole kind of atmosphere and vacuum deal. So here's a quote. A combination of spiritual atmosphere and a spiritual vacuum is simultaneously holding us together and driving us apart. That's the phrase that this guy used at this presentation. And as he began to describe that, I thought, Do you know what, that is so true. That is so true. Because we live in a world, okay, and I'll show you that, that says... We don't want God anymore. That's the Western culture that we live in. That's why the God's not dead thing is quite a big deal. And, and, and as a film, there's lots of weaknesses in the film. But someone, a friend of mine told me this morning, if you read the review in The Guardian, the review in The Guardian said we should ban this sick filth. It was actually what the review in The Guardian said. Okay. Now, there's some weaknesses in it as a film, but that statement is a massive overreaction. And so we live in a world that it has this whole sense of we don't want God anymore. And if you don't know that in our culture, you're not reading the press and you're not watching what's going on. Because there's massive stuff. And yet at the same time, we've also got a massive spiritual need. And a massive spiritual... So it's like this atmosphere and vacuum are holding us together and driving us apart at the same time. Does that make any sense to you? So here's, here's the three big points of tension okay, uh, that, that I want to just throw at you. And these, these are massive. And, uh, and these are part of our Babylon. And this is our current reality Babylon. Okay, and somehow we've got to find a way of living out these values in that context. Number one is sexuality. Oh, so, sorry, the end of the quote. On the surface, that might seem very negative. But positively, it means that we have the opportunity of effectively engaging society in a way not seen for some time. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. So the first one is sexuality. Okay, societal tensions of sexuality. So here's a quote from a guy called Peter Tatchell. Anyone heard of Peter Tatchell? Yeah, you have. I know some of you aren't British, and so please forgive me, a lot of these are, are British. He's a gay rights activist. Um, he, here's a quote. Acknowledging these social changes is, however, no reason to lapse into anarchic moral relativism. Instead, we need a new moral framework for teaching sex education that can encompass diversity while also giving young people guidance on how they are most likely to find erotic and emotional happiness. Peter Tatchell used to be a rebel. Now he's part of the establishment. You not notice that? 
So, so, so what's happened, and this isn't an anti-gay comment at all, but I think with the redefinition of marriage, same-sex marriage and all of that, what's happened is that what was seen as quite rebellious in our society is now the norm. And even though if you're actively gay, that's a very small percentage of the population, the voice of that is incredibly loud, incredibly loud in our culture. And again, this is a whole conversation itself, and I don't want to come over wrong in any way. Please, God help me. But, but, but I do want to say that things that were rebellious are now mainstream. And things that were mainstream are now seen as outdated. And that's often our Christian values and this whole deal. Are you with me? So we've we got to look at that. You see, you see, the problem is when it comes to the gay, the gay issues, that often Christians that have any alternative view now to everything's okay are seen as homophobic, are seen as judgmental, are seen as all those things. And in some cases they are. And in some cases they are. But just because we have an alternative view does not make us homophobic. It really doesn't. Just because we have a view of marriage that we believe from the Bible, I certainly believe, is I, in an ideal scenario, is one man and one woman. Okay, because I have that view does not make me homophobic or judgmental. It means I have another view. That's all. Uh, but, but what has happened, and, and this is where our tension is in terms of engaging with our Babylon in this one, is that for us as Christians, the issue is often around behavior. It's often around behavior rather than orientation. But the problem is in our society, it's all now around identity. So they don't understand the behavior argument because it's all about identity. Because someone's gay says, it's not just what I do, it's who I am. And that's a whole big shift that's happened in the last probably 10, 15, 20 years, certainly in the Western culture. Here's an interesting quote from a name which is a fabulous name. Her name is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. How posh is she? Formerly a lesbian professor of English literature, now a pastor's wife. Here's a quote. There's only one orientation in the Bible, and that's not sexual orientation, it's soul orientation. So this category of sexual orientation is a made-up one. Sometimes Christians embrace it because it helps expose the fact that Christians struggle with all manners of sin. But we should be careful about how we encourage people to think about what it means to thrive in Christ. There's that word. Especially when the Bible says it's better to be single. Okay, in that context, okay, don't, don't, don't get hung up on that. But what she's saying is that we all get hung up as Christians about how we're going to deal with the sexuality issue when it comes to the gay issue. Because it's about identity. But actually, the Bible, when it talks about identity, doesn't talk about sexual identity, but soul identity and soul orientation. So wouldn't it be amazing if, if whether someone's gay or not, they felt really welcome to come to this church? Wouldn't that be amazing? And if we could reach and connect with them and help them, not deal with their sexuality, but deal with Jesus and come face to face with Jesus. Because it's a soul orientation issue, not a sexual orientation issue. C.S. Lewis uh, who will have heard of, author, apologist, academic, had a friend who was struggling with a same-sex attraction. Um, but he broke off that relationship, and this is the quote that C.S. Lewis wrote to him. As regards your news, sympathy and congratulations. Isn't that a beautiful mix of grace and truth? Sympathy on the wrench of parting and the gap it will leave. Congratulations on having done the right thing and made a sacrifice. And, and the elders and, and staff went to hear a, a, a guy recently speak about same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, the whole thing really. And he was, uh, he was gay. And he said, I, I was brought up as, as a Christian, went away from my faith, was gay, was in a gay relationship for a long time. Came back, had an encounter with Christ, became converted, uh, realized that or, or, or believed that my lifestyle was wrong. He said, but my orientation has not changed. 
My behavior has, but my orientation sexually hasn't. But now that I've met Christ, that's completely changed my life. And so he's dealing with the reality of still having same-sex attraction, but actually believing that celibacy is the, is the answer for him from the Bible. And when I look at that, I think, as regards your new sympathy and congratulations, there's th- that sense of identifying with humanity. Does that make any sense? Identifying with humanity and saying, how must be really tough for you? How must be really tough for you? And that grace and truth is really important. And if we're going to engage with the sexual um, uh, issue of our society and of our culture, we're going to have to learn grace and truth better than we have done in the past. And that's the hot with me. Because in the past, we've often, Christians, have been all truth. Do you know what I mean? And we have to be grace and truth and we need to lead with grace uh, and then have truth as well. So that's, that's one thing. That's a massive conversation. Secondly, social inequality. The guy was saying this is a big societal tension for us right now. This is a big part of our Babylon in our Western culture. How do we speak into this whole area of social inequality? Deborah Hargreaves here, who is uh, the director of High Pay Centre, uh, she said this quote, if the growth in inequality continues at its current rate, we're heading towards Victorian extremes in the next 20 years. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's quite scary if it is, isn't it? Living in that kind of inequality. Here's something uh, that's knocking around called the graph of doom. This is a local council in the north of England, and they put it out as the graph of doom. And basically you can see that all of their needs for uh, uh, care and provision is going up, and their revenue is coming down, and they predict there'll come a time, and uh, we know we're in there now, aren't we? So so this kind of sense of social inequality is a part of our Babylon now. And we need to speak into that and step into that. Grant Costello, uh, former chair of the Scottish Youth Parliament. uh, Keep going, Chris, please. He said, it's been clear for years young people are expected to clear up the mess left by previous generations. And there's this sense of this, and again, the next quote, uh, this guy called Niall Ferguson, broadcaster, Harvard University. I want to suggest the biggest challenge facing mature democracies is how to restore the social contract between the generations. Now, some of these guys aren't believers, but I think they're saying some prophetic stuff. That we've got to restore the social contract between generations. And we can do that because we believe in a kingdom where there's justice, compassion, love, honesty, peace, humility, truth. That's the answer, isn't it? Isn't the answer isn't to say how bad all this is, I don't think. The answer is actually to show something better, and, and, and that's fantastic. The third one, perhaps the biggest one, I think, is secularism. And uh, here's Richard Dawkins, um, an atheist, as many of you will know. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. But you know, people like Rich Dawkins and others, it's really interesting because again, a few weeks ago, I heard this guy called John Lennox, who's a professor of maths at Oxford University, who I spoke about this morning, and who also is a Christian theologian, who debates regularly with Richard Dawkins, and I bought a couple of DVDs of him debating with Richard Dawkins, which I haven't watched yet, but I will watch. I think it's really interesting, and I think we should do more about this kind of stuff, because I think there's a lot of people out there who've heard the media say, oh, science has disproved God. This guy is a scientist, like a worldwide scientist, a massive brain who says, that's absolutely ridiculous from every which way around. And I heard him talk about creation and evolution. And someone asked him a question. They said, how can you believe in the Bible when you've written a book that you think the world is, is billions of years old? Which he does. And he said, I wrote that. I wrote that. And I do believe that for two reasons. Firstly, because of what the Bible actually says. And secondly, because of science. And then he opened up Genesis 1 and it was absolutely mind-blowing. And I think we need to hear more of that kind of stuff. Because all we hear is this kind of stuff in the media, isn't it? 
about who needs religion, who needs faith, who needs God, God's dead, all this kind of stuff. And there's a darker side to people like Richard Dawkins as well. And listen to this quote. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Oh my goodness. We've got something a lot better to bring to the table than that, haven't we? But the problem is that there is this tension of this spiritual vacuum and this spiritual atmosphere at the same time. So here's some other brilliant quotes which I love. A couple of authors, A.N. Wilson, the first guy, I don't know anything about him other than this quote, the human race can easily deprive itself of Christianity but finds it rather more difficult to lose its capacity for worship. Because there's something inside of us. Let's make a vacuum, but there's an atmosphere. And there are two things. And then this one is my favorite one, Julian Barnes, which I think I quoted a couple of weeks ago. And it's just simply this. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Isn't that amazing? To me, that's like the heart cry of a generation. If we want to talk about prophetic stuff in the end times, that's the heart cry of a generation, isn't it? I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And if you watch the God's Not Dead thing, it's amazing what happens at the end with this whole thing about this atheist who doesn't believe in God. And actually, he does believe in God, but he's just really angry with him. And there's a whole host of people like that. There's a whole host of people like that. Now, the, 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 the other interesting thing is the resurgence of the cathedrals, which again has come in. So, so here's some interesting stats. In two, 10 years, the overall weekly attendance in cathedrals, not just to go and have a look around, but to actually go to a worship service in a cathedral, grew by 35% in this country. Weekly attendance has more than doubled. So there's like this whole kind of thing of we don't need God and we don't need faith. At the same time, we kind of want it. Do you know what I mean? And this whole vacuum and atmosphere working together. Now, there are other big tensions and challenges in our Babylon. There's Islam, there's relativism, there's pluralism, there's consumerism, there's all these kind of things. But these are tensions that will impact your world. So what I want you to do, one more time in the groups, and then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of bring it to a close with some stuff straight out of the Bible, is how can we engage? How can we engage in these kind of issues from where we're at? What are some of the calls on us in the end times, you know, in the last days which we're in, to be the kingdom of God, to be the people of God into our Babylon? How can we do that? What are some of the challenges to us as individuals and perhaps even to us as church? And I mean that in the, in the global sense, not just to this church. So just take a couple of minutes on that. Is that all right? Okay, fantastic. I, I want to leave it there just because just of, of finishing here. But I think the, the, way, the reason why I think this is important to connect this, this stuff I'm talking about with our view of the end times is this. If your view of the future and the end times is hopelessness, us hanging on till Jesus takes us away and it all goes down the pan, then it will affect how you respond and live, won't it? It clearly will. Now, now listen to, to these words from Acts 1, 6 to 8. Then they gathered round him, Jesus, and asked him, Lord, so, so he's been resurrected and he's shown himself to them over this 40-day period and he's about now to, 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 to be ascended into heaven. Then they gathered round him and said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's clear that there are two responses here. Their worldview, their response is clear. Are you going to turn the clock back? Because that's what they're asking in verse 6, isn't it? Put the next, are you going to turn the clock back? Are you going to restore like it was before? He says, no, I'm not going to turn the clock back. You're going to turn around the world. Acts 1.8. So we Acts 1.6 people God, this is so bad. Are you going to turn the clock back? 
Or are we Acts 1-8 people? God, with your help, your spirit, you, through us, are going to turn around the world. Are you going to turn the clock back? No, you're going to turn around the world. So with that in mind, let's return to the end times conversation. What are we certain about? See, because this is why this is so important. How we view the future, how we view Jesus coming again, and our role in that is absolutely vital. Or we'll live a certain way. If we don't view it that way, if we don't view that he's going to come back and join with us in bringing all this stuff, a new heaven and a new earth, then we will live a certain way. We will be in our little holy huddle. We'll be holding on and blah, blah, blah. That's, not, that's Acts 1.6. That's not Acts 1.8. What we're certain about is Jesus is coming again. He is. It will be a personal return, Acts 1 verse 11. This same Jesus that you see going will come again, is what the Bible says. It will be a visible return, Revelation 1.7, every eye will see him. It will be a sudden return, Matthew 24.44. The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect it. So don't get writing a book about it, because it will come when you don't expect it. It will be a decisive return, Matthew 24, verse 14, and then the end will come. It will be a glorious return, Matthew 24, 30. Then it will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I think the first coming of Jesus was so hidden, wasn't it? So obscure, so weak, so vulnerable. The second coming will not be like that. That's what the scripture says. And it will be a welcome return because he's coming, I believe, to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. See, that whole thing, kingdom on earth is in heaven. We often think when we die, oh, I think it's on earth. I think heaven wants to touch earth. That's why I think social justice is so important. We're going to look at some of these issues in a couple of weeks' time when we look on a spotlight thing. It's why food bank, it's why what we do in Africa, it's why the way we live our lives is so important. So it's about God. This is like a little bit of heaven on earth and it isn't perfect. And God, one day it will be because you'll come and you'll make it that way and it will be a welcome return. So what should our response be? We should be watchful. We should be watchful about what's going on in our Babylon. We should be like it says in the Old Testament about men of Issachar who understood the times and who knew what Israel should do. We should be watchful. But we need to be watchful without getting distracted. We need to be watchful without getting distracted. We should also be careful. It matters how we live. And, and uh, someone made the comment to me in the break about, you know, and they went out of the toilet and come back and has everybody gone? Do you know what I mean? And that type of thing. But, but actually, you know... The, the disciples thought when Jesus was ascended that Jesus would come back again in their lifetime. You can tell by reading the New Testament. When you read it, with that, that's how they felt. They thought he was coming back in their lifetime. And there are some scriptures that, that, that point to that as well. That's a good thing that all of us live like he could come back in our lifetime. Because it will affect how we live our life, wouldn't it? You know, that kind of bumper sticker thing, Jesus coming back, look busy. You know, it should be, <laughs> Jesus is coming back, be ready. Be ready. And I was brought up in the 80s on all of that kind of, can't say the word, end time stuff about Jesus is coming, right? You know, and two men walking up a street, you know, one disappears and all this. And I was brought up on all that and it freaks you out. But I tell you, one of the good things it does, it says, God, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. So we live ready by, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Psalm 32, three to five message. There was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable, filled my days with frustration. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. Confession is telling God what you've done that he already knows. It's not for his benefit, it's for yours. That's a great way to live. Jesus, if you come back, I don't want there to be any unconfessed sin in my life. Neither do I want there to be any unresolved conflict in my world. 
And the Bible says in Matthew that this is the only occasion when you duck out of church early. It's not to go to the football game. It's to go to deal with relational conflict that you know about. It says, don't bring your gift at the altar. Don't do that first. Go deal with that. Go deal with that. Because if Jesus could come back at any time, I don't want there to be any unconfessed sin in my life. And I don't want there to be any unresolved conflicts that I know about that I could do something about. That's one of the ways in which we live ready. Thirdly, we should be purposeful. Not hanging on waiting, but on active service. I love 1 Thessalonians. If ever you want to look at that, look at this. The church of Thessalonica was amazing. And in 1 Thessalonians, verse 4 to 10, it describes a church who, who believe that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. There's a lot of end time stuff in Thessalonians, in the book of Thessalonians. They believe Jesus is coming back and they're waiting for that. But this is how they're living. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Paul says, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols, so you didn't do any of this kind of stuff. You turned to God from that, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That was a church and a group of people who believed that Jesus was coming again, But they lived purposefully and they became a model to everybody else. And if you read the few verses before that, it says how they lived. It says, you you lived like this, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope. What phenomenal three phrases, aren't they? Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. And I think that when we look in the Bible and we look at this end time type stuff, if it doesn't motivate us to want to live for Christ better now, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. And it says the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith has become known everywhere. What an incredible thing. Wouldn't that be great of us? Be great of us, the community of faith. You know, living like that, God, you know, we expect you could come back at any moment. And because of that, we want to be active. We want to be living right. We want to be engaging with our world. Not in desperation hanging on, but in purpose. And finally, we should be hopeful. You know, anything that you look at in terms of the end times and the coming of Jesus should fill you with hope. Should fill you with hope. Not despair, but hope. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God and, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Isn't that amazing? So for me, when I look at the Bible and I look at some of that stuff in Daniel, it's hard to get your head around. But then when you think about the themes of that and you think about Babylon, Okay, massive theme, our dominant culture, what it's trying to do to us, how we need to be countercultural. And when we look at the kingdom of God and how do we bring the kingdom of God, and we don't bring it, we know that, but we kind of help usher it. How do we bring this into that? Not being judgmental, not being, you know, we're not perfect, we haven't got it all together, we know that. How do we bring that into that? And how do we live such purposeful lives and lives that are ready for the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment? at any time and that's a good thing and we want to live hopefully for that so why don't you stand with me why don't you stand with me as we finish and 
be just amazing if we just prayed just for a couple of minutes together. What I'd love you to do, why don't you pray on your table? Just we'll stand because you've been sat a while. And why don't you just turn in with each other and just pray. Just two or three of you, just utter a simple prayer. Something that's hit you tonight. Something that you are concerned about in your world. In our world. Do you know what I mean? Something that you think, God, God, could, you, could some of the kingdom of heaven penetrate that? Could some of the kingdom of heaven be made known in that? And just two or three of you, just pray and then I'll pray and finish. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are not dead. Thank you, Lord, that you are very much alive. And God, we acknowledge that tonight. We are so excited about that. And God, we pray that, God, this book, this collection of books that you've given us, the Bible, God, that we would so want to read it and dive into it and understand it as best we can. And just when we think we understand it, God, it opens up more for us. And it's like this never-ending journey of exploration. But God, every time we dive into it, we get stronger. Every time we dive into it, Lord, we get closer to you. So God, help us, I pray. Help us to be the kind of people who, who know their God and who do exploits. We're not just hanging on for you to come back and rescue us. God, we want to see this world changed. God, we want to see this world transformed. We want to see the kingdom of heaven coming. We want to see heaven touching earth. We want to see it like it is in heaven, on earth, God. And God, we pray that you'd help us to live our lives in such a way that we could play a small part in that. God, we know that you're the great God. We know that you can do all things, and yet you choose to use us. You choose to use us in your kind of plan, and we are so in awe of that. But God, we say, please, use us in that plan. And God, I pray you teach us what it is to lead with grace and truth. Teach us what it is to serve God into people's lives. Teach us what it is to find common ground with people. Teach us what it is, Lord, to, to, to like you said, God, to, to be as, 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 what was it, as, as shrewd as a snake and as gentle as a dove. God, that's difficult. But Lord, it's possible because you said it. So Lord, help us, I pray. And God, I pray for every single one of us here tonight. God, now as you send us out and as we go into our Babylon this week, Lord Jesus, help us to go knowing that we are connected to you. Help us to thrive, I pray, this week. In Jesus' name we ask you. Amen. Amen. Amen.